Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A quick note before we begin today's show. We actually recorded this episode right after the Parkland shooting massacre. We were planning on releasing the episode shortly after that, but for one reason or another, it had to be delayed. And we actually made a comment amongst ourselves that, you know, unfortunately, it didn't really matter when we released it because there'd probably be another shooting to discuss. And we were tragically right. And the shooting last week at the Santa Fe High School in Texas proves that. Unfortunately, again, this episode is as appropriate as ever. I'd like to say it's our last episode about gun violence, but I'm afraid it probably isn't. Anyways, it's a good episode. Take a listen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the House of Pot. I'm Kaveh. And I'm Lizzie. And if this is your first time listening, we're a medical... Sort of. ...podcast where we try to discuss medicine and health in a relatable way. And we will answer questions you may not feel comfortable asking your doctor and definitely won't bring up to your friends. On today's show, we have Amy Barnhorst, the Vice Chair for Community Psychiatry at UC Davis. She's come to talk to us about her op-ed article in the New York Times, The Mental Health System Can't Stop Mass Shooters. Please make sure to like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, and tell your friends to listen. The opinions expressed on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. And now- 
Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. Hey guys, how are we? Pretty, pretty good. It's good to have you back, Joe. Thank you. Thank we, you. We miss you when you're not around. Yeah, I love the, the shout outs of the episodes I miss. You guys are so sweet. We love the squeaky vagina question. Yeah, we love got it. A lot, you, got you, a lot of feedback. <laughs> I thought you would, people would like that one. Was I correct in how I read your, the meaning of your question and the meaning of, quote, squeaky vagina? Exactly unquote. correct. It, it, and really, it's not squeaky. That was the wrong word. It's more of a farty. Farty. But I thought squeaky yeah, sounded we, funnier. Yeah, we addressed that. Yeah. But the, yeah. people, the people love the question. So uh, thank, thanks for calling in. It is All the a, colors. It's a little disturbing, like how well I know his mind. Yeah. Like, would, you know, like these profilers, these FBI profilers that get into the mind of like a serial mm-hmm. killer. Yeah. Like in how it can be like really dark and disturbing. Yeah. It's like that for me sometimes. It here. is. It's like you're like a psychiatrist, like an adolescent psychiatrist for Joe. I hate no, it. No, he's a, he's an adult. <laughs> Yeah. He's an adult. He deserves an adult psychiatrist. Yeah. We, we all ask, do. We should ask Amy Barnhorse, who's going to be on the show later today, about um, and analyze Joe and <laughs> analyze his this. forensically. Uh, how are you doing, Lizzie? I'm pretty good. I wanted to talk a little bit about forensic medicine now that you bring it up. Really? Because it takes me, every time we talk about forensic psychiatry or medicine, I immediately think of my time at Bellevue Hospital. Mm-hmm. And you've also had this experience where I believe it was the... 18th floor. Oh my God. The 19th floor, 19th South, where we had Rikers That's prisoners, super specific, specific 19 that South no and will appreciate, but 19, yeah, well, the Bellevue people will sure. 19 South and 19 North where we had all the prisoners from Rikers who were admitted to these wards. And there was always one person on the team of doctors. You know, there's always an attending who runs the show, a senior resident who's, you know, three years out of med school and then one or two interns. And there would always be this poor sap of an intern who had essentially all the patients on 19 South because you had to take the elevator and then you had to go through three or four different gates <laughs> and leave like, you know, back then we didn't really have a lot of cell phones, leave your pagers and all that stuff and like sharp objects and maybe earrings and, you know, special things with the people behind a thick glass window yeah. and you would just hunker down there for an hour, see the patients, write your notes because you wanted to go there once a day you didn't and go you back. never wanted to go back. <laughs> Except there were always these guys, these prisoners who just didn't want to go back to Rikers who would say, doc, I got chest pain. I got chest pain. And then you have to run up, evaluate right. them, do an EKG, draw labs, troponin specifically, right. and just sort of listen. What they wanted really was your attention and a double meal. That's all they wanted. Ah. So I did also do uh, forensic psychiatry in medical school. When I was, you know, when they were giving out the rotations to all the medical students, I found out that I was one of like two people that was going to have to go to the jail to do this. And I was not stoked about that. I was like, oh, wow, it's going to, that's really, can I just go to like the regular inpatient unit? Like I assumed it was going to be like one flew of the cuckoo's nest and pretty chill. Yeah. And I was like looking forward to it. I did not want to go to the jail, but I will tell you, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. And those forensic psychiatrists, they're fascinating. Yeah. And you see, I saw stuff that has really stuck with me to this day. This means like criminal Criminal psychiatry. psychiatry. Like you see it on... TV all the time, law and order or whatever, forensic. And what I'm talking about was just forensic, I guess, medicine. I didn't specifically do forensic psychiatry, which sounds much more mm-hmm. intense because you're really trying to get into the psyche of people who have already committed crimes or murders. It was a little <laughs> bit of everything. I mean, it was seeing uh, prisoners who had, you know, genuine 
psychiatric issues and it, you can imagine how easy that would be to come across once you're in the jail. Right. And it was also dealing with people who were suicidal. In psychiatry in general, you know, we talked about this in the past. In medicine in general, you take a lot of losses. And those guys take a ton of losses. So they really learn to suck the marrow out of like the victories that they come across in those situations. And, this and I have is a lot why, of respect for that. This is why Joe... Kave can understand your brain so well because of his time <laughs> on forensic. I'm just teasing. Joe's not a criminal. I, uh, it was cool actually. And I, you got to, I got to work with this warden who was a sort of world expert in detecting when people were lying. Cause there's all these interesting sort of techniques that people have like to, to get, um, people they're interviewing or interrogating to open up to them. The whole good guy, bad guy, good cop, bad cop thing doesn't necessarily work, but sort of there are tells and there are these sort of these, these small physical tells, which I don't know if the science behind it is great, right. but because the definition of a sociopath is someone who's able to lie without remorse, without regret, without sick, um, thinking twice about it. They'll do it in a, in a heartbeat and it almost is natural and normal for them. So I do think that trying to decipher so a let, sociopath from like, you know, a liar is probably incredibly hard. So let's play a little game right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to ask you two truths and a lie. Okay. You're going to tell me two things that are true uh -huh. and one thing that is a lie. Okay. It can be anything as simple as my first car was a blank. Okay. You know, keep it real simple. Okay. But go ahead and give me three of them. I'll tell you which one is a lie. Okay. Wow. This is very hard for me. Um, but, uh, cause I'm just so bad at these games. <laughs> I have pooped out a worm. I have picked hard, crusty poop from my dog's butt. And I also have driven, owned a Honda as my first car. Wow. Okay. Hold on a second. First of all, the fact that it's so poop-centric is a little bit concerning. The first thing you go to is your poop. But Joe, I mean, I'm a GI doctor. Um, so Joe, Joe thinks he has the answer to this. First of all, clearly you've picked hard, crusty poop out of your dog's butt. I think that like we've all seen your dog running around with hard, crusty poop. I'm assuming <laughs> really? you've done that. That wasn't the lie? Joe has never jo owned Joe a dog. Joe picked that as the lie. <laughs> Joe thinks that I've never picked hard, crusty poop from my dog's butt. You think I've that's the lie? I've never heard of anyone doing that. Oh, man, dogs are disgusting. Yeah, that's why I'm a cat their, guy. But, yeah, me too. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, uh, they clean themselves. They take care of it. It's great. Uh, well, I should have done wrong. three poop things, so then you would no, have known. I see known. what you're saying. Okay, yeah. so, uh, so it's not that one. Um, now, did you ever have a oh, wait. worm in your... Wait, one was supposed to be a lie? Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> With the old truths? <laughs> They're no, my first car wasn't a Honda and I've never pooped out a worm. Okay, that's, hey, oh. I was going to say that. You guys, I ruined the, I told you I but that's But that's how good I am, is that I knew those two were lies, even yeah. though it went against the right. rules of that's the game. Right, that's why you couldn't get I'm it. I'm the best. I was going to get it. You, you didn't know what I'm saying? Time. That's why you couldn't have gotten it, because I screwed up the game. I was about to tell you those are, what I What does that say you. about me? I picked the only one. <laughs> That I just want you to know and thought that was a lie. That I'm so bad at this game and this wasn't choreographed and I still screwed it up. Like yeah, and you're I bad. really I'm sorry. You're bad. I'm you're sorry bad. about that. Anyway. Anyways, it was a fascinating experience and uh, I am actually glad that I did it. So Raja sent us an email. Um, our friend, good friend of the the show and helping behind the scenes, Raja Jagadeesan. Um, and he asked this question, and I guess I'll ask you, Kave. Um how do you feel when people ask you for medical advice at a party or when you first meet them? Mm. Is it flattering and you feel good because someone can help because you can help someone or is it stressful because sometimes you just want to feel like you're off the clock? 
wow. think it's a good question. It's a great question. Yeah, question. I mean, he's a doctor, so he obviously is coming from yeah. a good perspective. It, that is an interesting question. I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I would first like to start by sharing an experience from the other side of it. My uh, family was recently out on a vacation, and we ran into uh, one of my kids' pediatricians. And the pediatrician was there like uh, for a conference. <clears throat> and as we bumped into this person, I saw this look of horror on her face. Because <laughs> she was like, oh no, these people are going to ask me questions. I'm off the clock right now. I don't want to deal with this. I saw that look of horror in her face. I tried to diffuse it. I'm like, we're just, hey, hey just, my kids are feeling right, great. We're, walking, great. We're, we're just going to keep walking. <laughs> you went up when to I, the pediatrician, <laughs> you're like, just so you know, my kids have <clears throat> never been healthier. <laughs> right. So I could see it from that from the that angle as well. Yeah, as, now, the, as a patient. Sort as a patient, of, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, how do I, you know, I got to say, it, it so totally you, varies. So, it totally so clearly, varies from the doctor's perspective. But based on your reaction <clears throat> with your pediatrician, yeah. you clearly appreciate the perspective of being off the clock because you didn't talk to her about, you know... I, I, I do and I, I get it, but personally, um, one, it's always a little different when a doctor asks me a question, actually. That's, that's the first thing because it's, you know, doctors, they have that medical language. In some ways, it's a lot easier to talk to them yeah. about it. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of interesting because it always feels good that another medical professional trusts your opinion yeah. enough to ask you about something. Yeah. So that, that's always a little bit of that flattery in a yeah. way. But when non-medical people ask questions, it really can vary for me. Like it can, I can, if I'm at a party and I'm been, if I've been drinking, for example, and if someone wants to ask me sort of a difficult question, it's not the best time. Not, not the best time to like get like a great answer for me. I, that's why I don't like it. That's the only time I really don't like this it. This is a huh. good segue into airplane um, behavior and etiquette. And like, you know, I have taken Ambien on flights. Mm. I mean, I'm, I don't abuse it. So I'm happy to talk about it. I think I've mentioned it on very yeah. early episodes that um, on red eye flights, I do it. I mean, you know, it's once every two months. And, you know, if someone gets sick on a plane, I definitely have a story where I'm not sure if I raise my hand or if I dreamt it right. and I'm not sure. Right. And I, and In those I know situations, you probably shouldn't help. Oh no, not at all. I didn't. And it did not help, yeah. but I don't know if I dreamt it. <laughs> right. That's a real bad sign. <laughs> wow. Exactly. So I don't, you know, people wouldn't know right away and I'm sure I would disclose it. Cause again, it's not anything that's inappropriate um, right. or illegal or anything. And you know, you just have to be of your sound mind and body for giving professional advice or taking care of sick people, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but I think at a party, I agree that a medical professional or just a lay person, that's what we, not, we don't mean that in a mean way, a non-medical person asking a question is different. I do feel like I have to dig deeper usually with like a medical doctor. So I, I think sometimes not being um, with resources at my fingertips, you know, is mm -hmm. a little bit more stressful if a doctor's asking me a question. And I don't, I don't really mind giving quick advice if it's sort of like, can I tell you my 30 year history Right. and you're out having fun? That's not the appropriate time yeah. to do that. And then yeah. there are people who yeah. don't have boundaries, you know, like yeah. again, they'll be at a party right. and start talking to you about, you know, or GI doctors about their bloody poop or whatever. And people around you, you have to have some social awareness. People around yeah. you, you don't always want to hear. You got to read the room. Yeah. There. Like if you're with a date or a family member, not everybody wants to hear about medical stuff when they're eating or trying to like have a good time. So you just have to be aware. Right. No, that's, I totally agree. I, I just, um, I actually, for the most part, enjoy it. 
the if it is a quick question, I'm totally cool with that. Again, because it's you know we're doctors, we like to help people. That's yeah. like our whole thing. That's yeah. like why we did this. So we like to go out and help people. What I have noticed in these situations that annoys me is uh, when someone will come up and they'll be like, "I'm having this issue, blank. What should I do to to fix it?" And I'll be like, "Well, you should do this." And they're like. Nah. nah, I want to do something else. And I'll be like, all right, well, I mean, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. And uh, speaking of the plane thing, same issue. On this trip, I was just mentioning oh. on the way back, there was, really? they called for a doctor. Thankfully, there was like a medical convention. So I was like one of eight doctors <laughs> 40, yeah. that like went uh, to, to check it out. But yeah. I actually kind of like those situations because flights can be long and boring. And so you like I, to be distracted? It's actually a great distraction. Some people so just I'm watch movies. Totally for it. Not everybody roots for a medical emergency. I'm not saying I want bad things to happen to people <laughs> on planes. I'm just saying I'll get up and help. So, so why? Assuming I'm not drinking. I also just thought of one thing that when people ask you about your medical advice, um, the most frustrating thing is a non-medical person who gives you like 20% or 40% of the story because they don't know. They'll be like, oh, my dad had a CAT scan and it was a normal, abnormal. What do you think of that? And I'll be like, well that's a really hard thing to only have pieces of the puzzle when you want to give good advice. And again, I don't mind helping, but you need, you need a lot more information than just like there was blood. Oh, you know, right. You need more details. So interesting stuff. And then there's one perspective I haven't heard here that I'm surprised, like from a patient's point of view, um, if I see a doctor and and ask for advice outside of their office, I'm worried that they're going to feel like, Oh, I'm trying to get advice for free or there's they should charge me or make an appointment that yeah. kind of thing i mean is that well you're very thoughtful i don't think most people consider well, that and that's not really something we're worried about we're not worried about the monetary yeah. aspect of it i think mm, i mean we're not that's, that's fair we're salaried doctors um but people even we, who even if we were not i mean i people, agree friends you know? and family in particular but let's say you have someone your your next door neighbor comes up to you every week every right. month and starts asking you those questions i think at some point a doctor will say, "Can do you mind making an appointment?" Like at, at some point, you yeah. feel like maybe sure. you need more information. Yeah. Maybe you need an echo. Right, right, maybe right, you need an right. EKG. I do think at some point, when you feel abused or taken advantage of, you're gonna maybe ask right. for something to to make it even or to be complete because it's also potentially negligent if you're giving advice again with without all the information. Sure. Oh, that chest pain sounds like not a big deal, but you didn't get an EKG that we talked about with uh, Alicia Bravo, an ECG electrocardiogram. Then, then you might not be making a great decision. So at some point you're going to say, come to the office so I can be a good doctor. Yeah. Not necessarily for money, right, right, but right, they right. sometimes go, unfortunately, hand in hand, you know? Yep. Good stuff. So that's a good question, Raja, obviously coming from personal experience. All right, stay tuned. Coming up next, we have Amy Barnhorst, Vice Chair for Community Psychiatry at UC Davis. She's been studying gun violence for a while now, and she recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called The Mental Health System Can't Stop Mass Shooters. We're going to talk to her about it. Stay tuned. So welcome to the show, Amy Barnhorst. Vice Chair for Community Psychiatry at UC Davis. Is that correct? That is correct. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, get right to it. You wrote this great article in February in the New York Times entitled The Mental Health System Can't Stop Mass Shooters. Um, but it's just so important because obviously there's so much conversation about, 
you know, all these shooters and the psychiatric disease that's obviously underlying it. And there's just a whole debate about is this obvious or is this just an excuse, I guess. Yeah. Um, we tell us a little bit about the article for our listeners who haven't read it. Yeah, so it was an op-ed piece. And the it, it, one of the interesting things about it is I actually wrote that article, not exactly the way I turned it in, but um, a couple of years ago after a different mass shooting where the same thing had happened. And um, I had submitted it to the Times at that point, and they held on to it for a couple of days and then decided they weren't interested. And I, with some sadness, thought, I'll just save it because I know that it will be relevant again. <laughs> and I was on vacation when Good the call. Florida shooting happened and had been reading some stuff in the newspaper about it. And the mental health debate, of course, had come up again. And I thought, well, and people were starting to bring up the same issues and have the same questions. And I thought, well, I have, you know, I have this op-ed. So I pulled it out and I fixed it up and um, resubmitted it. And I think it was just happened to be the right timing and a way to answer a lot of those questions that were coming up about whether or not we could just presume that the people who are school shooters and mass shooters are mentally ill. And if so, then, hey, let's just fix up the mental health system and everybody can keep their guns and we don't have to focus on that. Right. I mean, the title is The Mental Health System Can't Stop Mass Shooters. So what yeah. do you see as the, the biggest, I mean, is the hurdle just identifying the problem that it's not always mental health? Or is do you see it as the mental health system just isn't I set mean, up to, to catch those people? I mean, one thing you mentioned is that these patients, for the most part, don't seek health care. They don't seek psychiatric advice. So how do you identify this population? That was one amazing sort of point that you make. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's they, they really, all of those things happen. Like, they fall out at every level of the system. So, one, they don't seek voluntary care. Nobody goes into a therapy office and says, you know, I'm having these thoughts. I'm really worried I might be the next mass shooter. Can I sign up for a really intensive, expensive therapy two days a week for an hour a day for right. the next five years? That costs that money, happen. probably. You know, they don't seek out their own care. So then we're kind of left with hoping that they somehow fall into the net of the involuntary mental health system. But... Um, we have a lot of checks and balances in that system to make sure that we're not taking away people's civil liberties and locking them up in psychiatric hospitals unnecessarily. So there's a reasonably high threshold of dangerousness and grave disability that you have to meet to be able to be put on an involuntary psychiatric hold. And that has to be due to a mental illness. So, for example, one of the criteria for involuntary hospitalization in California is grave disability, which means you can't provide for your own basic needs, like your food, clothing, and shelter. But if you're homeless because you don't have a place to live and it's not due to mental illness, you don't qualify for an involuntary psychiatric admission because it's not a mental health problem. Hmm. And the same is true. You know, if you just are homicidal towards your ex-girlfriend or your noisy neighbor, whatever it is, because they're annoying you, but it's not because you're paranoid or delusional, it's not because of a mental health problem, then that also doesn't qualify. So that's another place we would you know, lose mass shooters is a lot of them, they're angry and resentful and bitter about stuff that's happened to them, but it's not really because they're psychiatrically ill. Right, and is that called um, 5150? Because obviously as training, you know, the involuntary um, hospitalization for suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, again, is an extreme step. And I think that we all, I'm not sure where it became public knowledge, maybe Kanye West when he was detained oh. in the mental health institution. <laughs> or I, think. Uh, I believe Britney Spears also. Yeah, it becomes like one of these things of jargon, but it's a real term, right? Yeah, and that's what it is. So the 5150 is California's, 
it's the Welfare and Institutions Code 5150 that allows a police officer or designated mental health workers to petition um, to write an application for somebody to be put on an involuntary psychiatric hold for 72 hours for evaluation. Which and, is a big deal. And you're talking about civil rights, liberties, like yeah. to take someone and, and put them in a hospital against their will, you can imagine is a huge traumatic event and maybe at times could be potentially illegal. Yeah. And you, it's not something that we want to necessarily lower the threshold really far for in order to catch more potentially, you know, violent, angry young men. Right. Um, and then, you know, even at that 72 hour mark, so say that, say that somebody did put as, as was what I wrote about in my article, put somebody who might or might not have been a future mass shooter on a 5150 and they bring them to a psychiatric hospital, which is where I work for an evaluation. You know, I can admit them to the psychiatric hospital, um, because I'm just don't, I want to err on the side of caution, but even if I make that choice, they get to go before a judge once their 72 hours expires. They can, the staff in the hospital will then apply for a 14 day hold. And that's a much longer hold and a bigger deal. And so we have due process for that and they get to go before a judge and the judge will decide whether or not they meet criteria. And in the case that I wrote about in the New York times op-ed, I did end up admitting the guy that I was seeing who I thought had potential to be a school shooter, even though I was pretty sure he was not mentally ill. But the judge ruled that he wasn't meeting criteria because he didn't appear mentally ill. He promised he wasn't going to do anything. He said the stuff he had made comments about online was just him, you know, trying to be a tough kid. Yeah. And so he was let go. And then at that point also, you know, not only has he not gotten any treatment because there's not really treatment for what he had or was, but he also doesn't meet a federal firearms prohibition either. This article that you wrote, um, I think it really highlights a lot of very important points um, within the mental health system and the difficulties people in your position, doctors and people in the system have with these patients. The first thing is this patient comes in and he's not floridly psychotic. He's not Mm -mm. obviously overtly what we would call quote unquote crazy. He's not, he's not anything like that. I mean, he may have a personality disorder. There might be something else. You you mentioned that there's these clearly these strange sort of aggressions he has, but it's the kind of thing where where do you draw the line? And you another thing you highlight really well is the stress it puts on the doctor in that situation. You say, right. <laughs> you, you you know, you say in it, you're like, well, I could kick this can further down the road, but all I'm doing in that situation is leaving it up to another doctor to have to make that decision. At yep. some point, someone has to decide, is this guy safe or not safe? And and it's very difficult in this situation because this guy clearly sounds like a threat, right? And he sounded scary. But at the same time, he that guy, I'm assuming, has never gone on to commit a, a, a mass murder. So how do you know? I mean... Not good. I don't think he has. Yeah. So, I mean, but how how can the mental health system be a part of this? I mean, we can't... There are some some mass shooters. And I actually think that this term probably applies more to mass shooters than school shooters, but I'd have to really look at the numbers who were psychotic or delusional, um, who did have psychiatric histories who were, you know, there was a woman many years ago who, um, opened fire on a TV station that she believed was broadcasting details about her sex life over their news reports. And that, that sort of thing is a little bit more indicative of a mental illness that could be treated and possibly prevented by the mental health system. Um, so there are the rare cases where 
somebody does seem to have a treatable mental health disorder, we could actually make better in the mental health system. Um, I think the other thing that the mental health system can do is focus on kids and supporting kids in school, supporting kids who are having social problems. And I don't mean the involuntary psychiatric hospital part of the mental health system, but I think a lot of the, a lot of the school shooters, what they do have in common is this history of being isolated, um, being bullied, feeling like they're on the outside. And um, I think, uh, and this is, you know, not something the mental health system can fix alone, but I think the general social structure of life in America is something that contributes to that, but on such a, honestly, a relatively small but scary scale. Yeah. And it's a lot of changes in different agencies that would have to happen in order to prevent that sort of thing. Right. It's like a huge cultural shift and just accepting the fact that like, it's not all mental health. Right. And, um, right. And we do, and we, and we can't just fix it with a medication or one class and we do need to identify. I mean, you hear over and over that a lot of these kids you know, if someone just reached out or talked to them or included them, you know, that, that, you know, you say in your article, you can't treat hatred. You can't treat resentment. These are the feelings that probably a lot of these people are feeling. And that's just something that needs to be done sort of maybe social, socially or culturally, and not necessarily medically, I, I think is, is uh, right. again, what yes. I took away. So in terms of how California is different from um, other states, could you explain to us what sets California apart in regards to its gun laws and what other states may or may not be able to learn from us? So some of the things that California has, um, as an example, in most states, if not every other state, when you go to a psychiatric hospital and you get admitted to the hospital, you don't actually get a federal firearm prohibition that lands you in the national database that dealers are supposed to check until the point of your commitment. So that's that point where you go to court to argue your case in front of a judge mm -hmm. about your involuntary hold. Mm -hmm. And if the judge doesn't uphold your hold, as he didn't with the guy that I talked about in my op-ed, then you never reach that national firearm prohibition. That's but California actually has a state-level prohibition that happens at the time of your admission, if your admission was for dangerousness. And there's good research to show that, you know, people with mental illness are not a huge contributor to community violence. Their um, levels of violence in general are not very much higher than matched community controls, especially if in the absence of substance abuse. But um, the one of the times where there is an uptick for people with mental illness is, is in the period surrounding a psychiatric hospitalization. Hmm. So I think it is a common sense thing that if you're admitted to a psychiatric hospital for being dangerous, it's it's a good thing for you to not have a firearm for a couple of years. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Common sense, right? That's what um, yeah. it seems like everyone's And then one of the about. other ones that has been on the ballot in California and um, was not passed was another measure that is based on evidence, which is that people with multiple substance abuse infractions would be prohibited persons as well. And the, you know, the federal gun control act does state that people who were addicted to controlled substances are supposed to not have firearms, but it's, it's really hard to get a registry of those people. Right. You know, How do you prove you get, that like, a dealer's cell phone? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then in California now with weed, you know, marijuana being legal, I feel like there's also a lot of conflicting stuff, but, um, will you tell us a little bit about 
you mentioned is called the Gun Violence Restraining Order and what, yeah, what you so hope to this achieve? This actually passed in California in um, 2014 and it went into effect in 2016. And one of the most surprising things to me about it is how, how few people know about it. So um, Garen and I both actually work with a group called the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearm Policy, and they were really instrumental in helping craft and consider this law and also in helping other states think about getting something like this on the books. But in California, what it does is it allows for family members or police officers to petition the courts to get an order to remove somebody's guns temporarily, even if they legally own their guns. So um, a scenario would be, and this actually passed in the wake of the Isla Vista shooting, where the shooter's parents had gotten really concerned about him and thought he was going to do something. He'd been posting stuff online that was increasingly menacing. He had bought a bunch of guns. And so his parents called the authorities in Santa Barbara, and they sent the police to his house. And when the police met with him, you know, he didn't seem mentally ill in any way. He didn't meet criteria for a 5150 hold. They didn't know he had the guns, but even if they did know that, he bought them legally. I'm not sure there was much they could have done. They couldn't you know, get a warrant to search the house. They had no probable cause. So they just left. Huh. And um, they didn't really have, you know, of course, everyone lambasted them for that, but they didn't really have any legal recourse. And the same is true for the recent shooting in Florida. Lots of people saw this coming, but no one really had any way to stop it, unfortunately. So the gun violence restraining order closes that gap and it gives you that way to stop it when you have seen all these warning signs. That's really interesting. Um, That's a, it's an interesting thing and you're right. You know, we haven't heard a lot about it. So I I haven't heard a lot of criticism about it either. Have you, are people complaining that that might be uh, changing someone's due process or that might be limiting someone's due process? There are people who have issues with this law and what's difficult to get it passed. Well, one of the things that you know, people bring up the due process part of it, and one of the things that I think was smart about how it was crafted was it's modeled after a domestic violence restraining order, which already exists in all 50 states in some form, where there can be like an emergency ex parte order that happens without the respondent really being involved, but within a very small amount of time, like a week or two, they get to go to court and make their argument before a judge and that's where the due process comes in and if they win they get their firearms back and if they don't the judge can extend the order for six months or a year so there is due process built in but there's also kind of a quick and dirty let's just get this person away from their firearms and then sort it out in fact this is what you know there was a sort of a meme going around about trump saying take the guns first and right you know check with the courts later later. and it kind of made him sound like he didn't really know what he was talking about or he was violating everyone's due process, but he was actually reflecting on what Jeff Sessions had mentioned about a gun violence restraining order, and that is how they work. There's a ex parte or emergency process where you do take the guns first, and then the person gets to go to court and get them back. Yeah, or it seems like, back. again, seems sort of common sense, because in what other scenario other than emotional do you need a gun immediately or urgently, you know? Right, Sort of interesting. Right. Yeah. So actually, so, Joe, Joe has a question for you here. Yeah, okay. I've, I've never heard of this law, and it sounds like a really great idea. Um, my question for you is, um, it's been in place since 2014. Um, what's happened since then? Have, has it been tracked as far as the progress or, or non-progress of it? Um, has anything changed? Um, it is being tracked. It hasn't been in 
really in use enough for there to be enough data to do research now, but um, Karen went to meet again at the Violence Prevention Research Center is one of the people who's tracking it and gonna look at outcomes. There have been a number of cases in multiple counties for a variety of things. As expected, because there's a similar law that's been in place for I think over a decade in both Connecticut and Illinois, although in both of those states it's just police officers who can petition, not family members. But that law, both of in both states again, it was passed in the wake of this horrific violent tragedy. But the law ends up getting used a lot more for people who were suicidal than for people who were homicidal. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's interesting also that you mentioned that it sort of followed this pattern that was already set by laws about domestic abuse and that sort of thing, because isn't there some connection between people who commit domestic abuse and gun vi- acts of gun violence? Yes. Yeah, so that is, there's, there is overlap of people who um, commit mass shootings and gun violence. And especially if you consider, you know, the FBI uses the definition of mass shootings of four or more people killed in an incident. And if you, stop there, the number is much bigger than if you include the word public mass shootings, Mm -hmm. because domestic violence mass shootings are so tragically common. Um, And a lot of times that stuff happens within the home. But there's a big connection between people with prior histories of domestic violence, people with substance, particularly alcohol or stimulant abuse, um, and this kind of violence. There's not a huge connection between, for example, schizophrenia and mass shootings or bipolar disorder and mass shootings. Not the way there is with this other stuff. Um, So we actually have a uh, a voicemail from a listener who had a question for you. We're going to play for you now and uh, get your response to it. I'd like to know if this is true or false. The increase in gun violence in America is caused in part by the number of violent video game and the number, um, the amount of time people play violent video games. And my name is Brenda Lee. Thank you. Bye. So I don't know if the listeners or Amy, if you heard, it's just, uh, is there a correlation specifically with violent video games? And, you know, the second follow-up, I guess, is, and the amount of violent video games that you play. Do you, do you know any of that information? I know a little bit of it because I've wondered this too, and good question, Brenda Lee. This comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, they've done some studies on what violent, like first-person shooter video games, do to people's levels of empathy, and they have found, and you know, the results are not—they're not like overwhelmingly all in the same direction. But there's some evidence to suggest that if you play a lot of those kinds of video games, that in the short term, it'll decrease your empathy a little bit. Hmm. Um, and we have seen a number of these mass shooters in their histories when people dig through that they were really into these kinds of video games. I don't think there is enough um, research to actually draw a conclusion that the video games are causing this. It's also really easy to imagine that the correlation goes in the other direction, that the kinds of people who are on the track to becoming a mass shooter or thinking about it or having those kinds of fantasies, the kinds of people who are hurting animals when they're little and hoarding military style weapons when they're in high school, that they would automatically be drawn to those violent shooter games. But we certainly don't know whether the video games are the thing putting them over the edge or creating them. I think there's just a, an affiliation there. Yeah. So along those lines and other things that we may not know, what research do you think still needs to be done? What do we need to see out there? 
I mean, so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think. I mean, and just to put things in perspective, when we think about firearm violence, you know, right now, of course, everyone's thinking about school shootings and mass shootings. But just to remember that that is like a tiny drop in the bucket of this steady trickle of firearm deaths that happen every single day in the United States. And I have this pie graph that I show when I'm giving presentations of the firearm violence, firearm homicides and firearm suicides. And the mass shootings on that pie graph are barely even visible. It's such a small slice. And the firearm suicides in the United States are two times the firearm homicides. So we're all worried about mass shootings, but what we should really be worried about are firearm suicides, especially, you know, when suicide is the second biggest killer of people in their teenage years. Yeah, because I'm sure there are some people who think that that's the solution. And then others think that, you know, maybe killing the other kids who are bullying them or whatever is a solution, but it probably stems from the same place, you know, so right. the research. Um, yeah. And there's, and there's also a big overlap between suicide and alcohol abuse, suicide and domestic violence. So right. suicide and owning a firearm. I mean, that's yeah. just having a gun increases your risk greatly. And, you know, most methods of suicide are not particularly effective, but killing yourself with a gun is really effective. Yeah. I mean, nobody's so, talking about revoking the second amendment. That's not what it's about. It's just about you know, trying to figure out what the root cause is and and work on that, you know? Yeah. Do you find yourself getting a lot of sort of vitriol about this? I mean, are you getting people who are upset that you are presenting this as not necessarily solely a mental health issue? That's the sense I'm getting from you is that you're not saying that mental health can't be a part of this. It's not like an either or situation. My sense is that you're saying mental health can be a small part of this or a part of this, a big part of this maybe, but it's only a part of this solution is that are you getting pushback about that are you getting what response are you getting from your writing you know um I, i've been so pleasantly surprised knock wood as i say this that i really have not i've gotten a lot of supportive emails mostly from people who work in the mental health world tons of psychiatrists saying thank you for saying this <clears throat> or psychologists or social workers saying like thank you i've been trying so hard to explain this to you know my family or friends or whoever else um I, uh, I learned after my first op-ed when um, Dr. Wintemeet helped me write it, he gave me a great piece of advice. It was a little too late at that time, but I've used it in the future, which was never read the comments. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, we don't read comments. It's a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. The, there's <laughs> ghouls out there on the internet. They're awful. So I don't know. You tell me. I don't know what people are saying out about me on the New York Times website, but the emails I've gotten have been um, surprising, like really supportive and most of the other media appearances I've gotten from that were people who were either already in favor of that position or willing to say like, Hey, I didn't know that, but I'm convinced. Yeah. Which was very surprising to me. Well, the psychiatry community, I think should be grateful to what you're saying, what you're writing, because you know, everyone wants a quick fix. That's what, you know, we talk about obesity and we talked about fatty liver on this, on this show a lot. And, you know, um, just trying to fix something and get help and, you know, there's no quick fix and people are going to look to psychiatry and say, you help us, give us the pill, give us the therapy or whatever, when that's, that's unfortunately not the answer. So if I were a psychiatrist, I'd be very grateful not to be let off the hook, but to, you know, to, to, yeah, to have like a public sort of support that, that no, I can't fix it. You know, we, everyone needs to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And I, I think that was one of the hard parts about the message is, you know, it's, it's not dissimilar to when you, 
consult psychiatry in the hospital about some patient who's driving the whole internal medicine team or surgical team crazy. And, and our job is really just to come in and say, yep, this can't be helped. It's going to be rough. We know when something can and cannot be, you know, helped in that setting. And I think it's, we have to come in and say like, hey, these kinds of guys, they're not people who can be helped by medications. They're not the kinds of people who are going to sign up for really good long-term intensive therapy. There's nothing a brief stay in a mental hospital is going to do for them. Right. And it sucks to say that because then people say, well, what are we supposed to do? I don't know. Right. But it's helplessness, but it's, it, it's also will motivate people to maybe find other solutions. You know, don't yeah. look for the quick fix. So. That is my hope. Well, uh, Amy Barnhorst, Vice Chair for Community Psychiatry at UC Davis and author of The Mental Health System Can't Stop, Mass Shooters, a great op-ed piece in the New York Times. Please check that out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I got to finally be on House of Pot. <laughs> oh, you, you know the way to our hearts. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time. Please make sure to like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, and tell your friends to listen. You can email us at hopquestions at gmail.com. You can call 408-444-6623. And now we're on Stitcher. Stitcher! All anecdotes and patient-related details were changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible. 